welcome this evening. Let's pause for prayer. Quiet your hearts and in your own words and in your own way. Draw near to Him. Let's uh, corporately embrace the promise. Draw near to God. And He'll draw near to you. You friends are here this evening because you have a desire down in your heart to draw nearer to Him. And He's here this evening in His kind, loving, caring gentleness to assist us in ongoing spiritual growth and maturity. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being together again. We've come deliberately desiring to draw near to you, knowing that we're not full-grown, that we all have room to grow. In each of our lives, there are opportunities for improvement. And I pray, God, that tonight, one more time, you'd coach us by your Spirit from the Word. I pray for every person here, students, faculty, staff, friends, that uh, you'd usher us forward in new spiritual discoveries. And may we be quick beneficiaries of new light from the Word and respond in total obedience to your leadership. Help me again with a fresh anointing by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. My wife and I have an only child, our daughter Nikki. She's 29, married, two children, lives in Long Beach, about 70 miles away from us. When Vicki and I discovered we'd be having our child, we discussed at great length what we would name the baby. I even went to the grocery store and I bought a paperback book. It was full of unacceptable names. <laughs> Vicki got the great idea of combining our two names. My name is Norman, her name is Vicki. She said, why don't we take Norman and Vicki and have Nikki? The other combination options would have been Vorman or Norky. And at 29, Nikki still appreciates the option we chose. When she was home from the hospital just a few days, we discovered the baby had a fever. And Vicki called the hospital. The nurse on duty at the ER said, try some cool baths and liquid baby aspirin. We tried it all day. didn't do any good. Called a second time and said, better bring her in. Doc on duty checked her out. I finally aggressively approached the physician. I said, Doc, what's going on with my baby? And he says, well, I'll tell you the truth, son. She's in real trouble. We don't know what's wrong. We'll do the best we can. We'll admit her, run some tests. Can't give you any guarantees. Those are tough days. She needed two major corrective surgeries before she's even a year old. Well, during those days of recovery on that pediatric unit, we got acquainted with other parents who had kids on the ward. And adjacent to Nikki's crib was a little baby in a chrome crib, about as big as a football. And I asked his mom, I said, what's his problem? And she squinted and scratched her head and said, I don't remember the sophisticated medical term. But what it means is failure to thrive. I was surprised when she told me that little baby was about a year old. It wasn't born premature. Slept a lot. Hardly ever moved. Didn't eat much. For some peculiar, perplexing reason, the little kid didn't grab a hold of life and take off and go and grow and mature, get strong and develop. They called it failure to thrive. I was glad when they told me it was rare in new births in America. Doesn't happen that often. But the bad news is that failure to thrive is rather common spiritually. Folks who've been born in the kingdom, but like that little infant on that pediatric ward, never got a hold of life, 
never took off and grew and mature and developed and got strong. That's the concern on the heart and mind of the author to the Hebrews as he writes in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And if you like, follow with me as we review these confrontive verses. Fifth chapter of Hebrews, verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. There's still some debate about who wrote Hebrews. Whoever wrote it was an optimist. I say that because of chapter 6, verse 3. At the conclusion of his rather bare-knuckle confrontation about his reader's spiritual immaturity, he gives them the positive bottom-line prediction. Just believe you're going to grab it and go for it for all you're worth. And God permitting, we will do so. Now, isn't that a terrific attitude in response to fresh light from God's Word? And that's my anticipation and experience in my visits here with you folks. At verse 11, 12, and 13, he's basically saying one thing. Folks, this is the way it is. It got failure to thrive. And a major case of it. At verse 14, he says, folks, this is the way it ought to be. And at chapter 6, verse 1, he tells you, folks, this is how you fix it. So let's pursue it for a few minutes. At verse 11, we have much to say about this. This what? I like to grab a hold of Scripture in its broader total context. Well, to understand what he's talking about, you've got to back all the way up to chapter 4. Verse 14, we won't read all that. But there the Hebrew author begins the discussion of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who functions for us as a mediator between holy God and sinful man. And he's likened to a mystical Old Testament fellow named Melchizedek. You ever heard of Melchizedek? Who in the world was he? And why do his folks give him such a funny name? We don't know much about him. He only shows up three times in the whole Bible. Genesis, Psalms, and here in Hebrews. Interesting, the first time that tithing is mentioned in the Bible is Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere, meets Abraham, collects a tenth of all of his assets, and then he disappeared. Just like a preacher, huh? <laughs> Show up out of nowhere, take an offering and split. I want you all to know there's biblical precedence for such behavior. He's called king of Salem and he's called a priest. And the Hebrew author is drawing some insightful parallels between Melchizedek's ministry and Jesus' ministry. Melchizedek called king of Salem, and he was a priest. Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords, and our great high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. Melchizedek had no conventional earthly parentage. He's an atypical person from the Old Testament, showed up out of nowhere, ministered for a while, and then disappeared. Can't trace him. And Jesus Christ had no conventional earthly parentage. He's born of the Virgin Mary. Showed up, ministered for a while, and then he went away. And when the Hebrew author says in verse 11 of chapter 5, we have much to say about this, this what? This priestly role of Jesus, kind of like that Melchizedek guy. 
He says, but it's hard to explain. Then he tells us why. Because you are slow to learn. Well, that didn't provoke one amen, did it? It's even less comfortable if you'll do a little homework in the original language. What's translated slow to learn there doesn't mean remedial, incompetent, mentally deficient, or incapable of learning. It means a voluntary opted slowness. He's saying you prefer to coast rather than to climb. You've chosen not to grow. A synonym of failure to thrive. Heavy truths I want to lay on you about Jesus in this priestly role. Tough to explain because you've chosen not to grow. Well, he continues at verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's Word all over again. What's he getting at? He's confronted his readers about their spiritual immaturity. He says, folks, you've been around long enough. You could have had an eternally consequential, significant, influential impact on other folks' lives. And when you subtold your own spiritual growth and development, you need a review course. And here he calls it the elementary truths. I checked it out. You know what it means? Same term used for the ABCs in grammar school. Same term used for the basic rudiments of carpentry. Hammer, nail, saw, tuba forts, and right angles. Just the basic beginner stuff. What's he getting at? He says, the heavy truths I want to lay on you folks about Jesus in his priestly role, tough to explain because you've chosen not to grow. You've been around long enough, you could have been teaching somebody else. But when you subtotal your own growth, you need a review course in the primary department Sunday school quarterly. That's what he's talking about. Well, he hands us a helpful built-in illustration. He says, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. At verse 11, 12, and 13, he said, Folks, this is the way it is. You'd be having a major failure to thrive. Well, at verse 14, he shifts gears. and said, Folks, this is the way it ought to be. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That's the way it ought to be. Solid food is for the mature. Synonyms for mature, holy, full-grown, adult, advanced. That's the way it ought to be. Well, I mentioned our daughter Nikki a minute ago. Well, when she was a newborn, she was nursed by her mom, and then it came time for that Similac formula. Can I have a show of hands? How many ever smelled that recipe? Would you raise your hand? Isn't that wonderful? It's worse the second time around, if you know what I'm talking about. Occasionally, I got to do my daddy duty and feed the baby with that formula. Then you got to do this burp program. Not too hard. She had an instinctive timing of unloading that unwanted formula all over the lapels of my suits and sport coats. I still believe it's somehow connected to original sin. <laughs> After the Similac trip, it came time for the Gerber's program. I see some young adult men here. I'd like to save you a crisis in the kitchen. If you're going to heat a Gerber's jar, in our day it was the Kmart porcelain-coated saucepan on the back burner with some boiling water. But today it'd probably be a microwave. Regardless, if you're going to heat those jars, take the lid off the jar. <laughs> in our little parsonage kitchen in her adjacent high chair, I got to feed her off my own plate sometimes. Started off with a little spoon in the Gerber's. She likes strange fruit. Applesauce, peaches, pears, terrific. 
when it came time for green peas or spinach, she would <laughs> unload that stuff and stuck on my tie. And for a while, I wore them some rather bizarre foulards and paisleys and rep stripes. But after she got some teeth, I'd dice up some chicken and feed her off my own fork. I even played that airplane game. You ever heard of that game? Who thought that up? And you ever wonder why it called an airplane instead of a motorcycle? I never figured that one out. I'd get a minimum load of mashed potatoes and I'd immerse it in the brown gravy and feed her off my own fork. Her nutrition was becoming more substantial and it was resulting in her growth and maturity. Now when Dad's buying, you ought to see her do a job on a lobster or a prime rib or filet mignon. And that's what the authors of the Hebrews is getting at. Solid food. The spiritually substantial and meaty is for the mature, consecrated, holy, adult, full-grown, advanced, who by constant use have trained themselves. A couple terms need some highlight. Solid food is for the mature who by what? Constant use. Does that sound different than hit and miss? Solid food is for the mature who by constant use, daily, diligent, prioritized disciplines have trained themselves, taken responsibility for their own spiritual nourishment and nutrition. You and I cannot afford to get by on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, snack, regardless of how meaty or advanced the pastoral pulpit ministry might be, one, two, or three meals a, a week won't get it. We don't feed ourselves physically that way. How many had breakfast this morning? Would you raise your hand? How many had lunch? Raise your hand. How many had supper or dinner tonight? How many going to have a snack after church if I ever shut up? Uh -huh. Some of you voted four times, and most of you voted three times. Just out of curiosity, I timed it. How long does it take us to eat a meal in our culture? About 20 minutes average. It's only about 5 or 10 minutes if you go to a drive-up window and you don't mind hot sauce from your taco or ketchup from your burger running down your shirt while you're trying to drive and talk on a cell phone all at the same time. i got some of those shirts if you want them. It takes about an hour and a half. It's your anniversary. Vicky and I went to a fancy French restaurant one year and the light was so dim you couldn't even read the menu. But even if they turned on the lights, you couldn't pronounce it. But what it meant was yucky sauce over duck. <laughs> it took an hour and a half to eat that night. But on the average, it takes about 20 minutes. And we just voted to do that three times today to nourish a physical anatomy that's going to return to dust. In some mega brain, would you please tell me, why do we nourish an anatomy three times a day at 20 minutes a pop that's going to return to dust and get by on such an irregular, occasional, quickie, spiritual snack for our eternity-bound soul? Solid food is for the mature who by what? Constant use, daily, diligent, prioritized disciplines 
have trained themselves, taken responsibility for their own spiritual nutrition to distinguish good from evil. If you and I are going to have any substantial quality ministry publicly, we've got to pay attention to our interior life privately. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to what? Distinguish good from evil. There'll be some places you won't go. There'll be some things that you won't do. There'll be some things that you won't drink. There'll be some things that you won't like. There'll be some things that you won't watch. The living of a holy life is not the result of some externally imposed straitjacket from some dark-suited Doberman pincher preacher. It's the result of what the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit has done in your own submissive, yielded heart where the top priority of your life is to please Him and be the person He wants you to be. That's the way it ought to be. Well, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Folks, this is how you fix it. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. That's how you fix it. Leave. Vicky and I want to be in Colorado Springs yesterday and today. So you know what we had to do? We had to leave home. Now, isn't that profound? At a specific time, we got in the car. I loaded the trunk. We left home, Southern California. First went over to Phoenix, spent some days there in Chandler, left there, came up to Albuquerque, spent the night there, came on up to Pueblo, preached at Pueblo first on Sunday, saw my mom and her husband Monday down in Pueblo. Yesterday drove up here. For us to be here, we had to leave where we were. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. Does that sound to you like two different locations? Leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on. A deliberate, specific, premeditated, willful exit. Time to get out of here and get to where we've got to be. And don't forget his positive bottom line prediction. Verse 3. And God permitting, we will do so. If we're going to have the quality of personal ministry that God has called us to, We've got to pay attention to our interior life. And that's what this Hebrew author is working on. And before we go, I'd like to offer you another cordial, respectful invitation for those of you who'd like to spend some time in prayer here at the altar to come forward during our invitation course. You may kneel and connect with the Lord in a timely way. Please stand. One more time, I'd like to encourage you to bow your heads. Put your attention on the Lord. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Examine your heart. Not in unnecessary, excessive introspection, but an open, transparent sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's coaching. And if there are issues that you and the Lord need to talk over before you go, you have a grand opportunity to come forward and kneel and pray and leave differently than you arrived. For those who'd like to come, you may step forward while we sing.